I, these are just the books of his that were in my office. Um, <laughs> now the top two were, the, I, were handmaidens of me in law school. Um, the Bill of Rights and American Constitutional Biography. Now, if, except for maybe Marty Katz, who was my con law professor, who was a Yale grad, and Erwin Chemerinsky's Hornbook, and Roger Pollan, I think Professor Amar, unbeknownst to him, taught me more about constitutional law and history than, than anyone else on the planet. So I'm very, very excited to, uh, to have him here. Um, I gotta get... His new book, which is available for sale here, which he clearly dashed off in an afternoon, is The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. Um, now, his bio is long, but I will give a, an idea of where he comes from. His, uh, uh, he's the Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, where he teaches constitutional law in both Yale College and Yale Law School. After graduating from Yale College, summa cum laude, in 1980 and from Yale Law School in 1984 and clerking for Judge, then later Justice, Stephen Breyer, he joined the Yale faculty, faculty at 1985 at the age of 26, which is very impressive. <laughs> he is Yale's only currently active professor to have won the university's unofficial triple crown, batting average RBI, sorry, uh, Sterling Chair for Scholarship, the Devane Medal for Teaching, and the Lamar Award for Alumni Service. His work has won awards from both the American Bar Association and the Federal Society, and he's was cited by the Supreme Court justices across the spectrum in over 45 cases, but not enough, right? <laughs> there, should have been, there should have been some more, I agree with that. Um, tops among scholars under the age of 65. He regularly testifies before Congress at the invitation of both parties, and in surveys of judicial citations and or scholarly citations, he typically ranks among America's five most cited and mid-career legal scholars. He's the author of more than 100 law review articles and several books. As I've said, one is on sale here. And he's recently launched a weekly podcast, which, which I do, which isn't as easy as some people might think. Uh, America's Constitution. That's, I see what you did there. That's very clever. Uh, please, welcome, please join me in welcoming Professor Akil Amar. It's such an honor to be with you, and I have had so much fun today. Um, uh, amazing, and I've learned a lot, um, and I hope I've made some, some new friends. So thank you so much. Very kind of you to invite me. Yes, today's talk is entitled Term Limits Slash Time Rules for Future Justices, 18 Arguments for 18 Years. Uh, and there'll be a lot of time afterwards for your uh, comments and, and, and questions. So start, start thinking about um, possible pushback or, or um, uh, um, helpful suggestions. In a bipartisan op-ed published in the Washington Post on August 9, 2002, Stephen G. Calabresi, the co-founder and co-chair of the Federalist Society, and I floated the idea that each justice should do 18 years of full and active service on the court and should thereafter have a different portfolio of judicial responsibilities. The bipartisan co-authorship of this 2002 op-ed was purposeful. The 18-year idea was then and remains today neither left nor right, neither blue nor red. I was then and remain today a mainstream Democrat and Steve was then and remains today a mainstream Republican. 
For example, in 2000, I voted for Al Gore, whereas Steve voted for George W. Bush. In 2016, I voted for Hillary Clinton, Steve for Donald Trump. When I first publicly embraced the 18-year idea, a Republican sat in the White House, Republicans controlled the House, and the Senate was almost evenly divided. Today, the partisan alignment is almost exactly the opposite. A Democrat sits in the White House, Democrats control the House, and the Senate is almost evenly divided. Yet I still consider the 18-year idea a good one. Indeed, in the two decades since I began mulling the 18-year idea, I've become even more persuaded that the root idea is a good one. I've over time tweaked and modified various details of my envisioned reform, but I remain convinced that some version of the 18-year idea can and should be embraced by Congress in a simple statute. Ideally, the statute should itself be bipartisan, drawing support from leaders of both parties and featuring a proper phase-in that respects the settled expectations of the current justices and avoids any appearance of a partisan grab reminiscent of the Midnight Judges Act of 1801. At the end of this lecture, I shall share with you the nuts and bolts of my proposed statute, dealing, de detailing how my 18-year idea might best be implemented in a fashion that I believe would be an entirely constitutional exercise of congressional power to structure the court pursuant to Congress's explicit power under the Article I Necessary and Proper Clause. And just as an aside, I'm envisioning, in effect, a, a purely prospective phase-in. So temporarily, the number of justices will increase until it settles um, back down. So this is emphatically not a throw clearance from the train proposal to accelerate the um, enforce the retirement of, of the most senior justices. That's just an aside. Um, you'll hear the details. That clause, that is the necessary and proper clause, of course, vests Congress with authority to pass proper laws implementing powers vested by the Constitution in, quote, the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof, unquote. Ever since the founding, Congress has used this clause to properly prescribe the size and shape of various executive departments, the powers and duties of various executive officers, the size, shape, and responsibility of the Supreme Court, the powers and duties of Supreme Court members, both in active service and after voluntary retirement from active service, um, uh, uh, both in active service and after voluntary retirement from active service, the rules of procedure and evidence operative in the Supreme Court, the timing of Supreme Court citizen, uh, sittings, and myriad other matters of similar scope. In perfect harmony with this well-settled pattern of congressional legislation, Congress should in the near future properly prescribe a lifetime duty roster for Supreme Court justices. A quick note on terminology. My specific 18-year idea and its close cousins, that is, variations of this idea that have been embraced in recent years, by a wide range of legal scholars across the political spectrum, have often been described as proposals for term limits for justices. Indeed, I myself have frequently used this phraseology and may well lapse into this locution in informal future conversations. 
Nevertheless, my proposal is strictly speaking not a limit on the official term of any given justice. Each justice is entitled under the Constitution to serve a life term in the federal judiciary, to serve during good behavior, to use a more technical formulation, and I do not propose otherwise. Each justice is entitled to be paid for life slash good behavior, and I do not propose otherwise. Each justice is allowed to claim the official title of Supreme Court Justice for life slash good behavior, and I do not propose otherwise. I simply propose that we modify the manner in which each justice serves on the court for life slash good behavior. Put differently, my proposal merely modifies and in a purely prospective way, the duty roster accompanying the official office of Supreme Court Justice. Indeed, given that the gist of my plan is purely prospective, it is in effect merely a mechanism by which future justices bindingly announce their retirements long in advance. Not say 18 weeks in advance, a la Stephen Breyer, but 18 years in advance in the very process of joining the court. You, you just heard in the last panel questions about the confirmation hearings. And in effect, going forward, in the confirmation hearing itself, people would commit to and accept the idea that they'll serve for 18 years and then transition to a slightly different set of Supreme Court responsibilities. Under my proposed federal statute, each justice in the process of being commissioned would agree that he or she will be a justice in active service, a member of the court's front bench, so to speak, with the same basic responsibilities as a typical justice in the system today for 18 years. Thereafter, each justice would serve in a relaxed service capacity with a different set of daily Supreme Court responsibilities, including but not limited to the responsibilities of current retired justices under 28 U.S.C. section 294. A relaxed service justice, whom we might also call an emeritus justice, would not routinely sit with active service justices on bonk, but would be available to do so in cases where the court is short-staffed, uh, when because of death or illness or resignation or accusal or the like, nine active service justices are not available for service. We just heard about, for example, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson's likely recusal in the Harvard case. Um, um, an emeritus justice would devote most of her daily attention to court-related administrative, ceremonial, education, public relations, circuit writing, and docket management functions, um, following a more detailed set of rules to be promulgated and from time to time revised by the active service justices themselves. Strictly speaking, perhaps we should call my, uh, we should call my idea not term limits, but time rules. In its ultimate constitutional logic, my proposal is broadly analogous to a hypothetical statute providing that no justice, should, no justice should speak for more than, say, five minutes in any hour-long oral argument. This hypothetical oral argument law is also best understood as a not as a term limit, but as a time rule. And here, I think, in particular, Justice Scalia um, in the um, so-called um, 
uh, line item veto case, uh, Clinton versus City of New York, where he in dissent said, actually, technically, it's not really a line item veto, and the justices were be just being, quote, faked out by the label. And so when people hear term limits, they immediately say, well, that's unconstitutional, but it's really, you know, the, the label that's misleading, so maybe we should call them time rules rather than term limits. Eighteen arguments. In the April 28th, 2021 episode of my free weekly podcast with Dr. Andrew Lipka, America's Constitution, I listed 18 different reasons supporting my particular version of the idea of 18 years of active court service, followed by a lifetime of relaxed court service. So just as an aside, it's free on this podcast. You can find it all sorts of places. Just Google Akhil Amar podcast. Um, it's available on a website that I have that also has all sorts of free materials uploaded, um, um, links to articles and, um, and books and, and all sorts of other stuff. There are about 90 episodes in all now, um, so you can binge listen if you like. Um, I only, we, it took us a, a long time, my wife and I, to finally get the kids out of the house. And, you know, into, and so we're discovering only recently like amazing things like The Crown. And so we're you know, going back and, and binge listening to all sorts of past, binge watching all sorts of past episodes. Um, and I do recommend The Crown. It puts in context um, some of the stuff that's happening now with, with Charles and Camilla. But, but you, if you listen to it, again, it's free, it's weekly, and you like it, you can go all the way back, 90 episodes uh, once a week, about an hour and a half um, an episode. Here in brief were my 18 arguments for 18 years. One, the status quo of lifetime active service when combined with a partisan arms race encourages each of our two major political parties to appoint unduly young and unseasoned jurists to the court in the hopes of entrenching the party vision on the court for as many years as possible. So each one wants to go younger and younger. Two, at the other end of the life cycle, the status quo allows for full service of justices who are too old, whose arteries have literally hardened and who are not at their prime. Historically, most justices have not done their best work in their superannuated years. There are, of course, exceptions. You know, my friends, of course. I'm going to say, oh, you're the exception. Um, but just on average, uh, that's the, the, the average. Three, so we have a problem uh, with too young and too old today. Three, the current system creates the possibility of too long a time lag between initial appointment and current judgment. The most senior active justices may be wildly out of touch with the nation's evolving mood because these justices were appointed long ago, even if they're still relatively young and spry and their arteries have not hardened. This time lag is particularly problematic for younger Americans who were not even voters when many current justices were selected. Many of America's younger generation lack a close emotional connection to the court, in part perhaps, in part perhaps because of the long time lag. Um, and I see this in my classes you know, with my students, undergrads and law students. The reform statute caps this time lag at 18 years for the court's most important function, decision-making in en banc cases. Four, the current system enables justices to strategically and politically time their resignations. This is a less attractive model of judicial independence. Currently, some justices act politically when they time their exits. Five, 
18 is a magic number, enabling regular um, and steady replacement, a la the Senate. The Senate's staggered, staggered, the Senate's staggered replenishment system adds a new third every two years. The 18-year active service plan adds a new ninth every two years. Six, 18 is a magic number in a second and distinct way. Appointment power is regularized and smoothed across the presidencies and across quadrennial presidential elections. Each president can count on two appointments and this smoothing makes replenishment less arbitrary, random, and capricious. Again, on the model of Senate replenishment. <clears throat> Relatedly, regular replenishment of the front bench makes it easier for voters to think about the court's future every presidential election without awkward and indeed ghoulish speculation about the life expectancies and health prognoses of individual sitting justices. I feel this as a commentator when they say, when you, you heard it from, from um, uh, Amy Howe. Uh, oh, because we had four pretty recently, you know, we're less likely to get an appointment anytime soon. She's implicitly trading on all sorts of actuarial assumptions about the age of the current justices and who's going to get cancer next and, you know, ooh, because you can't talk about that openly, so you either don't talk about it at all or, you know, it, you have these euphemisms and, and now we can openly say, well, in the next presidential term, the seat three and seat seven are going to come up for um, replenishment, and, and that's just, we can have a more grown-up democratic conversation without this awkward, ghoulish speculation. Eight, shortened terms of active service will reduce the stakes and the temperature of currently overheated court confirmation battles. So if it's about 40 years on the court, people are going to fight more fiercely than if it's about only 18. Nine, shortened terms of active service will increase judicial humility. 10, replenishment every odd year regularizes appointments within each presidential term with half of the active service justices chosen pre-midterm and half post-midterm. Um, so I'm imagining actually appointments in years one and three in a typical presidential term. The opening up of vacancies in odd years further reduces the political temperature of court confirmation battles by staging these battles in non-election years. That's this, you know, the, 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 the least superheated times you're going to have in our cycle. 11, an 18-year cap on active service brings the U.S. Supreme Court model into closer alignment with the most admirable state Supreme Court systems, almost none of which features active service for life. The federal government can and should learn from the lessons of states, the proverbial laboratories of American democratic experimentation. This is a Brandeisian point, you see. 12, ditto on the comparative international front. Almost no other modern democracy in the world has a lifetime model of active service for its apex court. America as a whole can learn from the experiences of the world's other notable democracies. And here I'm not taking a position on Supreme Court cases borrowing from, from other societies. I'm saying when we're passing laws or thinking about amendments, we as a society can, can look to see what Italy, France, India, Germany, um, uh, England, Israel, and so on um, do. 13, unlike current reform proposals to pack the court, 
The 18-year proposal is not partisan and is unlikely to spiral out of control when party control shifts in Washington, D.C. at some future point. Um, so I think, of course, core packing, if we tried to do it today, the Dems add six, and then when the Republicans are in control, they add 16, and then the Dems add 26, and um, so um, and this won't happen. In fact, 18 will solidify because of its magic relationship to nine, the current number nine, and I actually like that. Now, I dropped a footnote here. This, this is all from my podcast, and here's the footnote. On reflection, this podcast point was a bit of a cheat. I did not identify an improvement on the status quo, which is trying to say 18 arguments that were better than the status quo, but merely an advantage over another widely discussed approach to court reform, namely court packing. But here's a true improvement, which the podcast did not count as a separate virtue. So I'm taking one off the list and adding a new one to the list because you know, I like the idea of 18. Um, arguments for 18 years. The 18-year proposal minimizes the likelihood of a short-staffed, evenly divided court. Whenever one, of the, whenever one of the active nine justices is unavailable, a reduced service emeritus justice can easily pinch hit. And we don't have that now with Katanji Brown-Jackson or with Justice Scalia's um, death and non-replacement um, for um, many months, really um, you know, almost a year. So, so that's a distinct virtue, you're always going to have nine. You're going to have a, a pinch hitter on deck. <clears throat> um, Fourteen. The 18-year proposal not only eliminates the occasional or regular reality of politically timed retirements, it eliminates the public perception of politics and judicial retirements, a perception that may wrongly exist when Justice X in fact retires nowadays for entire pers entirely personal reasons, but a perception that adds to the current public cynicism about the court. So we don't know why Justice Kennedy stepped down when he did. Maybe he had all sorts of good personal reasons for it, um, but why should he have to tell us all of that? And, but there's a perception, oh, he did it because he's a Republican and this is on Trump's watch or what have you. So it's not just about the reality of politically timed um, resignations, it's about the perception of politics um, in the resignation decision. 15, under the current, under the 18-year plan, every active justice is slated to serve as chief justice in his, her last two years of active service. This, too, evens out power across presidents and eliminates the current lumpiness, giving some presidents, for purely accidental reasons, more power than others to pick the court's chief. Um, so I'm imagining you serve for 16 years as a, uh, an associate, and in your last two, um, you're the chief, which is how a lot of um, circuits sort of um, do it. They, they, they rotate seniority. Um, 16. Rotation of, chief justice, uh, of, chief, of the chief justiceship equalizes power within the court. Relatedly, associate justices will not have incentives to pander to the president in the hopes of one day being nominated by a president, of course, to become chief justice. Even if associate justices never in fact pander, the mere public perception that some justices might well be auditioning to be chief is undesirable. 17. Chief justices will be those who clearly understand the court 
having typically served on the active bench for the previous 16 years, and having received, one would expect, special training by their predecessor chief justice. So actually, first 14, you're an associate, next two, you're sort of a vice chief, and you're gonna, you know, uh, and then the, your last two, you're chief, and that seems actually kind of sensible, which is how lots of apex courts do it, lots of circuit courts do it. 18, circuit duty of emeritus justices could help reconnect the Supreme Court with lawyers and judges in the hinterlands, a nice echo of the original vision of the court as implemented by the Judiciary Act of 1789. So those are the 18 reasons, and by the way, I just kind of came up with them in the conversation talking with Andy Lipka. You can listen to the podcast episode, but basically every week, he's, an, he's a retired ophthalmologist, but he's a smart guy, and he asks me questions, and we just talk. He represents sort of the general audience, so, so I hope you give the podcast a, a chance because actually that's where I came up. I thought I ha might have five or six arguments, but we just started talking, and, and I was able to get up to 18. Okay, here's the last section. But is it constitutional? At the end of this lecture, I'll set forth a more detailed description of my proposed reform package. The details will doubtless prompt specific questions that merit further conversation. So be thinking what, what, you, what you want to ask. For now, let me briefly explain why this proposal is, in my view, easily and obviously constitutional, able to be effectuated by a simple congressional statute and not requiring a constitutional amendment of any sort. As mentioned earlier, the Constitution expressly and purposefully vests Congress with broad power to legislate rules structuring the executive and judicial departments. This power is, of course, not unlimited. Congressional legislation must be proper. And I think people in this room really care a lot about constitutional propriety. And I'm with you all. It must comport with the Constitution's letter and spirit, including the specific letter and spirit of Articles 2 and 3. Consider, for example, two hypothetical congressional laws that, in my view, would be constitutionally improper. So I'm going to give you an example of you know, what, what would be wrong and why. First, imagine a congressional statute purporting to dictate to the court how to construe a particular constitutional provision or how to construe the Constitution in general. Such a law would violate the court's power to say what the law is, to quote Marbury versus Madison, the power, that is, of the court to determine for itself in its own independent judgment what the Constitution in fact means. True, Congress has broad power to dictate to the court how to construe a particular federal statute and how to construe federal statutes generally, but this power is largely derivative of the power to enact federal laws themselves. If, Cong if a law can be broad written broadly, how is this different from a law written in rather more ambiguous language, but featuring a clause telling the court to, quote, construe this law broadly? Still, the power of Congress to dictate to the court rules of statutory construction, whether local or global, is not infinite. The court may at times read the Constitution itself to require that certain things must be said very clearly and expressly by Congress via a super clear statement. If, con if the court believes that the Constitution itself requires or invites such a clear statement rule, Congress does not have carte blanche to direct the court to ignore its own constitutional beliefs in deciding the cases that come before it. More generally, Congress surely lacks carte blanche to tell the court how to construe the Constitution, either locally or globally. 
Congress itself did not create the Constitution, cannot change the Constitution at will by ordinary legislation, and is not the sole master of constitutional meaning. The Congress is, of course, free and indeed obliged to construe the Constitution for itself in many situations. And Congress is also free to express its understanding of constitutional meaning. The court may well choose to give weight to Congress's good faith judgment of constitutional meaning, but Congress cannot, by law, require the court to follow Congress's interpretation of, con interpretation of constitutional meaning. This basic principle, deducible from the Constitution structure, has been reinforced by important rulings of the court itself, most notably the 1871 case of United States versus Klein. In that case, the justices correctly held that Congress lacked power to dictate to the court the meaning and scope of the president's pardon power under Article II. So that's one example, and I gave that in part because you're hearing all sorts of, I think, crazy reform suggestions by other folks, and I'm saying, here are examples of things that, no, you can't do by mere statute, and you shouldn't do by constitutional amendment, in fact. Second, Imagine a congressional statute purporting to restructure the court's decision-making by forbidding the court to strike down federal legislation unless the court vote is at least six to three. There are suggestions like this out there in the land, and, and we've seen them actually over the course of American history. Any statute, and I think they're bad, any statute that gave a jurist brandishing a mere, a mere congressional law a weightier vote than a dueling jurist wielding the Constitution would improperly invert the clear prioritization of legal norms established by the Article VI Supremacy Clause, which of course privileges the Constitution over a mere congressional statute. Put differently, thanks to the letter and spirit of the Supremacy Clause, Congress may pass no law giving any judge who sides against a constitutional claim more weight than a judge who sides with a constitutional claim. And if a law may permissibly require six out of nine Supreme Court votes to disregard a congressional statute as unconstitutional, why not seven or eight or even nine out of nine? Given broad congressional power to resize the court, why couldn't Congress require that every congressional law be strictly followed no matter how constitutionally outrageous unless 99 out of 99 justices on a packed court unanimously agreed that a given congressional law was flagrantly unconstitutional? At that point, Indeed, well before that point, judicial review itself would have effectively been eliminated in open defiance of Articles 3 and 6, the Federalist Number 78, Marbury v. Madison, and centuries of constitutional law built on this constitutional bedrock. So in case you missed it, that's why I really don't agree with my friend and colleague Samuel Moyne, um, who writes stuff like this, and, and many of my students who are writing stuff like this. But my proposed 18-year time rule is entirely different from improper laws of the sort I've just described. The proposal is deeply respectful of the constitutional principle of judicial independence. Indeed, because this proposal would discourage mature justices from timing their resignations in political or partisan ways, it would instantiate a superior version of independence compared to the status quo. Unlike the law in Klein, which interfered with powers directly and explicitly vested by the Constitution itself in the office of the president, that was a case about the pardon power, my proposal does no violence to the office of Supreme Court Justice as outlined in the Constitution. The Constitution vests no particular power in any individual judge or justice to hear this case or that one, apart from the power of the Chief Justice to preside at presidential impeachments. 
My proposal in no way intrudes upon that power, even though it does revise the process by which a given jurist becomes the nation's chief justice. My proposal does not retroactively deprive any current member of the court of any vested privilege, and its structure provides the same rules for presence of both parties going forward. Under my proposal, Every president henceforth will nominate a new justice in year one and year three of every presidential term. In addition, the law could provide in veil of ignorance fashion that the new system will not go into effect until after the next presidential election, an election that at present is a toss-up in the opinion of our best political prognosticators. So it, this is not a partisan scheme. You do it behind a pure, pure perspective veil of ignorance, fine by me. In essence, the 18-year time limit would simply be a proper and prospective law structuring and shaping the Supreme Court and the Office of Supreme Court Justice, constitutionally indistinguishable from a vast number of earlier and current laws shaping and structuring the Supreme Court, lower federal courts, executive departments, and various Article II and Article III offices. For example, and I'm going to give you about four or five different analogies you see to what this plan is, and then I'll read you the plan. For example, one, beginning in 1789, in legislation signed by George Washington himself, Congress has prescribed, and over the ensuing years has from time to time modified, the number of justices, the court's overall jurisdiction, and the duty rosters of various executive and judicial officers. How is the envisioned duty roster at the heart of my 18-year plan proposal, 18-year proposal, any different as a matter of constitutional principle? Second, notably, the first Congress prescribed when, where, and how the justices should sit on bonk, including a rule prescribing that any four of the court's initial six members would compose a proper quorum for the court's on bonk decision. How is it any different in today, if today's Congress says the court's proper en banc composition, as a rule, involves its pre-emeritus justices as distinct from its emeritus justices? Congress likewise, in its er earliest statute on the judiciary, the Landmark Judiciary Act of 1789, prescribed that the proper duty of a Supreme Court justice was to ride circuit at certain times. Although some modern scholars have raised technical questions about the constitutional propriety of circuit writing, this was an enormous and defining feature of the celebrated Judiciary Act of 1789, enacted by the first Congress, which contained many leading framers and ratifiers of the Constitution, and was signed into law by none other than George Washington. Every early justice, in fact, rode circuit. None openly resisted circuit writing on the grounds that this element of the job was unconstitutional. Circuit writing built squarely on early pra earlier practices and traditions in various states and colonies and in Britain, traditions of Assize courts and Nisi Prius in which jurists of a uh, legal regime's highest court sat individually or in smaller groups in courts across the countryside bringing justice to every man's door. If this system combining local sit sittings and centralized en bancs was good enough for George Washington and James Madison John Marshall and Joseph Story, it should be good enough for us. Modern scholars who are squeamish on this point should yield to the great weight of early liquidation and utterly settled practice. If Congress could say, if the first Congress could say 
that a given justice must sit on bonk in month X and ride circuit in month Y, why cannot today's Supreme Court, uh, today's Congress, say that a given justice must sit on bonk in years 1 to 18 and ride circuit thereafter? In laws stretching back to the Washington presidency, Congress has likewise prescribed various rules of evidence and procedure to be followed by the Supreme Court and other federal courts. Surely, the 18-year time rule can be understood as structuring the procedure of the court. That is its basic manner of proceeding and conducting itself as distinct from its substantive pronouncements of the legal rights and duties of proper litigants who come before the court. If all these other procedural statutes are constitutionally kosher, how is our envisioned term limits slash time rule statute decisively different? There is virtually no doubt that Congress could legislate proper rules for Supreme Court ethics, including rules specifying situations requiring recusal. How is a rule prescribing en banc recusal in general for any jurist who's already heard um, um, her fair share of en banc cases any different from all sorts of other recusal rules that Congress might properly adopt? Why cannot a rule limiting pre-emeritus front bench service to a fixed number of years be justified as a simple judicial ethics regulation discouraging politically timed and partisanship-tinged retirements? My plan also aligns, closely aligns, with the recent and current practice for sitting and retired justices. In the mid-1990s, William Rehnquist sat by designation while also serving as chief. So he sat on a lower federal court while also being chief justice. Since 1937, at least 11 retired justices have sat by designation and in effect have ridden circuit per 28 U.S.C. section 94 to wit. Justices Vandervanter, Reed, Burton, Clark, Stewart, Powell, Brennan, Marshall, White, O'Connor, and Souter. I don't know what Justice Breyer's plan is, by the way. If modern justices can ride circuit after voluntarily retiring, why is it any different if the announcement of their voluntary retirement occurs much earlier in the process, namely in the course of joining the court and simultaneously promise to step off 18 years hence? A final point worth reiterating from my April 28, 2021 podcast is that the 18-year reform proposal would bring the U.S. Supreme Court into closer alignment with some of America's most distinguished state court judiciaries featuring long fixed terms of active service. State constitutions, of course, differ from the federal constitution in important ways. Still, the wide popularity of state judicial term, time limits uh, for service is one reassuring factor in support of the basic propriety and common sense of the 18-year proposal. In, in its deep design, and unlike several other high-profile reform proposals currently in the air, the 18-year proposal is entirely and self-consciously in keeping with the American way. Okay, so here are the nuts and bolts, and I'm going to take two minutes to just read the proposed statute and then have at me. The Supreme, Congress should enact language along the following lines. The Supreme Court shall henceforth consist of four classes of justices. Legacy justices, that would be like Justice um, uh, Thomas or um, uh, the current justices. Um, regularized justices, replacement justices, and emeritus justices. All legacy 
So the regular ice are just like the 18-year thing. Replacement is what happens if someone steps off a little bit early or dies early. Um, emeritus is what you do after 18 years, and legacy are the current ones. So le all legacy, regularized, and replacement justices shall be considered justices in active service, and then they're emeritus justices. All justices in active service on the date of this law's enactment are hereby designated legacy justices. Their service, tenure, rights, and responsibilities on the court shall remain unchanged, provided that at any time a legacy justice may elect to take emeritus status by becoming an emeritus justice. Regularized justices shall be eligible to receive good behavior commissions that commence no sooner than July 1, 2023, and every two years thereafter. One regularized commission per every odd year. And if you don't want to pass it now, just, you know, just adjust it forward to the, the next year one after the next presidential election. No president may nominate, so it's going to be July 1 in every odd year, um, odd number year. No president may nominate a regularized justice prior to March 1 of the commissioning year. So you nominate in, uh, in, on uh, March 1, and the commission can take effect on July 1. Regularized justices shall in all respect be equivalent to legacy justices, except as follows. Regu each regularized justice who wishes to remain on the court must take emeritus status no later than 18 years after his or her commission-eligible July 1 date. If any justice in active service shall take emeritus status or leave the court at a time when the total number of remaining active service justices shall be nine or more, so we've got extra um, capacity, no court vacancy shall thereby be created. If, however, any justice in active service shall take emeritus status or leave the court at a time when the total number of remaining active justices shall be less than nine, the vacancy may be filled upon presidential nomination and Senate confirmation and presidential issuance of good behavior commission by a replacement justice. So just imagine, you know, perish the thought that there was some pandemic or attack or something and a whole bunch of justices, you know, somehow were incapacitated. Well, then you'd want to be able to replenish immediately. Um, but um, so... Um, but I'm envisioning the idea of a replacement justice if someone leaves before their time. This replacement justice may continue in active service until displaced by the commissioning of a regularized justice in due course, whose addition to the court brings the total number of remaining active justices back to nine. Um, so this is basically like just what happens in the Senate. If someone leaves you know, before six years, um, someone else fills in the rump of, of, of their term. Um, and, and just it, it maintains, you know, every six years, um, the, the stagger, uh, the staggered replenishment. So, you know, um, you have this idea of, of a replacement justice. Um, okay, provided that in no event may any replacement justice continue in active service for more than 18 years. So you just fill the spot of the person who ha has left early. If at any time there should be more than one replacement justice, the most junior replacement justice shall be the first displaced, the next most junior shall be the next to displaced, and so on. Um, at the end of his or her active service, a replacement justice may elect to remain on the court by taking emeritus status. Um, by the way, they're not going to be, you know, no one's going to want to try to step down to game the system because you're allowed 18 years 
for yourself. And, and at best, if you step down early, you're just going to get a clone of yourself. So, you know, for just for the remainder of your term. So you, there's no benefit, just like there's no benefit, you know, for a senator typically. Okay. Whenever the chief justice shall take, a, the current chief justice, shall take a merit of status or leave the court, the position of chief justice shall devolve upon the senior most legacy justice or regularized justice. So um, we have a sort of seniority system. Um, um, uh, and then I added something that you don't have to have at all, but if you want to have a partisan balance on the court, I have some rules about how the court shouldn't be you know, more than 5-4 in either direction, but I'll just pull that out. Just, it's, it's severable. Um, except as otherwise provided for herein, all justices in active service shall perform the same functions as do the legacy justices on the date of this law's enactment. Emeritus justices shall be eligible to participate in case decisions only when the court is short-staffed, to wit, only in any given uh, when in any given case the number of active service justices shall fall below, uh, below nine as a result of vacancy, disability, or recusal. Emerit, and this is the final sentence, emeritus justices shall also be eligible to perform ancillary administrative, ceremonial, educational, circuit writing, and docket management, that is even certiorari um, functions, as shall be outlined in rules to be promulgated and from time to time revised by the active service justices. So I want to enlist the court members themselves in trying to figure out what would make sense for them to do um, after 18 years, you know, how they want to envision their, their final years of service and what they actually think um, they're going to be good at um, at the end. Okay, so that's the proposal, and I invite you to have at me. Thank you very much. Whatever you like. Okay. Dev in there. Uh, Greg, wait, uh, the mic over here. <clears throat> Former legal associate, Devin. Hi. Um, first, I wanted to say this is probably one of the best reform proposals I've heard of the court. So, um, and then I just had two possible criticisms. Uh, the first is that um, one of the best things I thought about this kind of thing is that it maintains the balance of power based on which party wins elections over the previous 18 years in the far future when there's only uh, those justices on the court. Um, but the problem exists that if it's, say, two years into the term or four years into the term and there's another president and the, one of the justices dies, the new president would be selecting the replacement. And so the balance of power on the court would shift based on the death of the, pres of the, the justice in that case. Let me suggest an alternative that the justice selects their own understudy, which then must be Senate confirmed. So presumably, the understudy would be of a similar judicial mindset of that justice, uh, and therefore would not change the balance of power on the court, even if they were to die. That's a pretty cool idea. Um, it's um, very similar to an idea that I uh, proposed about house replenishment, um, because house replenishment 
um, uh, can't be done the way the Senate uh, uh, um, is with uh, the executive. Um, uh, suppose a House member dies, you can't actually just have the governor um, pick a replacement. Now the problem is because of um, continuity in government um, issues, if there were a nuclear attack or something like that. Um, so I imagine actually that when you're elected, the people on election day um, elect your um, vice representative. And so you could imagine each person picking the vice, their vice, or the president picking um, the, the vice um, uh, justice at the same time. Now, what happens if you know there's a double death or something? How how long a, a line of succession are you going to have? But I, I think that's a cool idea. And the other thing, I, I at least value uh, stability in the law more than having justices that are most responsive to the current majority. So. In my opinion, it should be a 36-year term, which we would have one justice selected per Supreme presidential uh, election. And that's um, not going. That's going to actually superheat the confirmation process rather than cool it down. And I think it will increase judicial arrogance rather than humility. Um, so you know, I had those 18 arguments, but but by the way, um, you know, thank you. I, I and I was at first thinking, well, you know, this is the Maybe better than all these other, you know, daft reform proposals that that are out there. Um, I once testified on behalf of a constitutional amendment proposed by a, a very great patriot. Um, I'm a Democrat. He was a Republican. He was the longest-serving Republican senator in history, or the late great Orrin Hatch. And it was a proposal to make um, people who weren't lucky enough, as I was, to be born under the American flag, presidentially eligible after a long period of service. Um, and Kennedy loved um, Hatch, and, and Leahy not so much. And um, Leahy gets up and basically, say, in effect, says, like, you know, of all the horrible, stupid, you know, uh, outrageous things that, that Orrin Hatch has ever said, this seems to me the least horrible, stupid, and outrageous, <laughs> you know, which is the best, you know, Pat Leahy was ever going to say, you know, on, on behalf of Hatch. So, so I am glad you like it better than the others. But, but and I'm, I'll take that on as a friendly amendment. That's, that's a real possibility. But I think 36 would actually not achieve some of the features that I'm going for. So one. Um Back, uh, back there, yeah. Andy Hawks. Uh, Professor, the recent Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court uh, refused to endorse any form of uh, term limits for justices. Uh, did you have a chance to present your time rule proposal to the commission? I did, and they were, um, we actually did three podcast episodes. The first one where we just sketched out 18 years. The second one was called Witness, and it was called 18 Arguments for 18 Years. We had a second episode called uh, Witness in the Center Square. It went back to Hollywood Squares. I was actually on that little uh, Zoom grid. I was Paul Lind in the middle. You know, the, some of you will remember Hollywood Squares and, and, and Paul Lind. You know, um, so um, uh, I, I did get a chance to make my pitch. And then when the commission issued its report, we had yet a third um, episode on this. So, so lots of binge listening awaits. What do you think the commission got wrong? Uh, they just didn't want to take a position on anything that Biden put the, created the commission to basically just let things cool down a bit and to take the pressure off some of these daft ideas like court packing and, and eliminating judicial review and all the rest. Their basic purpose was to do nothing. 
Um, and, and some of you in Cato might think, that's as good as you're ever going to get in Washington, <laughs> D.C. So, um, um, but in fact, if you read their report, mine was one of two ideas that basically they hated the least and, and actually s said has some real possibility. Now, several of the commissioners were my former students, um, Kim Roosevelt, Jack Goldsmith before he stepped off, um, Caleb Nelson before he stepped off, um, you know, um, uh, 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 Caleb... Uh, several more, um, uh, um, and several were my colleagues, but I actually don't think there was as much opposition to this, and there was a fair amount of support for it, um, uh, uh, truth be told. Will Bode, also. So uh, thank you for that very insightful presentation. As, as you know, I'm generally supportive of the idea of 18-year term limits, but it's also my view that it probably requires a constitutional amendment. Your proposal is the best I've seen in terms of trying to make an argument that you can do it without an amendment, but I would want to briefly ask about a couple of problems. Uh, one is that if you uh, defend the constitutionality of this by analogy to rules about circuit riding and things of this sort, then it seems like not only could Congress do this prospectively, but they, uh, uh, but they could also do it retrospectively even for the current justices because they could certainly, I would assume you would agree, they could certainly alter circuit riding rules even for the current justices. Can. And the current justice could not say like, you know, I was promised I wouldn't have to ride circuit or whatever, but now uh, you're changing this. So it seems like then this would be a power that Congress could use for in effect a kind of quasi-court packing. If they don't like what the existing justices are doing, they could say, well, we're gonna make all the, we're gonna make certain existing justices emeritus justices or restructure their duties in other kinds of ways, like you still have the title of Supreme Court Justice, but what you actually do is you hear parking ticket cases in Nome, Alaska on federal property or something like that. So I would worry about that. Then the second related issue is that uh, I recognize there's some fuzziness on the question of what's uh, eliminating or fundamentally altering the office of Supreme Court justice versus procedural rules, but it does seem to me that unlike circuit riding and these other kinds of things, saying that after 18 years, you're effectively deprived of the main power of the office that is sitting in a in regular on bank, as you call it, uh, that that's going to the core uh, of the office and therefore seems in tension with the constitutional provision of life tenure, even though obviously there could be other issues where, you know, that's less clear, like yeah. is too much circuit riding, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, 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 trenching on that or not. Right. So those are my two Good. concerns, but I do think this is much better thought out than other proposals that I've seen which say that this can be done without a constitutional yeah. amendment. Um, so actually those are truthfully pretty easy, Ilya. Ilya is another former student. No one has a constitutional right to the existing um, jurisdictional uh, regime in place when they're adopted. And, and for hundreds of years we've, we've modified the rules, sometimes adding duties, sometimes taking it away, and, and that's just you know, how, how we do things. Um, and if you don't like circuit writing, by the way, I have a footnote saying we can, we can eliminate um, this or anything else. In fact, um, one of the things I want to do is enlist the justices themselves in actually prescribing what makes sense, you know, for, the, for, for them, them as individuals and their colleagues um, to do after a certain point. Um, and, um, and 
and, and forget just for a minute. So that's about the, that's about Clarence Thomas or Sam Alito. Going forward, this is what you're signing up for, of course, when you agree, you know when, when you're confirmed um, uh, to the court that, that this these these are the rules um, that are um, in, in place. But just again to repeat, just in general. Um, uh, we haven't changed the nature of um, the Supreme Court office. Um, we're not making you, um, uh, in effect, um, decide um, nuclear launch codes or something like that. We're not taking a judicial office and turning it into um, Secretary of Defense. So, so we're just tweaking the office as we've done for 200 years, changing jurisdictional statutes all the time and retroactively, not purely prospectively. Um, can we make them actually ride horses again? Huh? Um, so <laughs> Roger Pallon gets the last um, question. But, but, but if, if, if again, um, any specific part of the duty, if you think it's actually like adding too much to what the justice is, is just changing the nature of the job, um, you could just take that off the list. And I, I, I would actually welcome in the, in the hearings, the congressional hearings we're going to have on them, that testimony from existing justices as to whether they think this is actually you know, too much or too little to, to, uh, for existing justices and for future emeritus justices. Final question to Roger. Yes, since I hold the beacon, Simon Chair, it's yes. fit and proper that I get the last question. Um, Two questions, actually, a technical question and a constitutional. Technical is this. Uh, if I understand you correctly, uh, if a justice appointed to an 18-year term uh, leaves the seat, uh, then the, his replacement doesn't get 18 years. Correct. He just fills the slot. Exactly. So it's the really rump. the slot that is the issue. Correct. Okay. All right. Uh, the constitutional Just question. like the Senate. Just like the Senate. <clears throat> yeah. The constitutional question is this. I assume that you uh, are grandfathering in current justices. Correct. Uh, for, f not simply for prudential reasons in order to get this through Congress, but rather for uh, concern about the constitutional implications of applying this to sitting justices. I think both. Um, it's just, yeah, sure, it's, of it's course. just better rule of law. It, it's not Clarence Thomas. Look, especially after Bruin and Dobbs, of just the optics of, oh, we're going to, this is, you know, first throw Clarence from the train and then throw Sam from the train. Right. No. My question is this. Is your concern well-founded, uh, as it may be, about applying any of this to sitting justices? Does the concern uh, spill over to what you're proposing, uh, in other words, do you, are you anticipating um, unconstitutional uh, questions uh, based upon your concern about grandfathering and current justice? If you had any of those concerns, then just let's have a delayed start date so this doesn't even begin to go, you know, if it, if it goes okay. into action, you know, in 2036, you know, that's going to be fine by me as long as, you know, the bill is entitled the Amar Calabresi um, <laughs> Judicial Reform Act of whatever. As proposed at the Cato Institute on oh. September 16th, 2022. And that actually gives us uh, the end of our, our program for the day. Uh, thank you to Professor Amar. <clears throat>